So why don't you turn in your Bibles with me? You'll hit Exodus 15. Our message today on this uh, March 31st, 2013 is called Heavyweight Hope. Heavyweight Hope. I want to talk to you for a few minutes while you find Exodus 15. Tell me there when you're there. I also have to get there. You know, the flight in last night had some turbulence on it. And there were men behind us that were discussing every unclean thing. And the funniest thing happened since serious turbulence. They began trying to get their life right with God. <laughs> the problem is, as soon as the turbulence cleared out, so did the peace that was in their hearts. And they returned to their previous conversation. Listen, the biblical story is an epic underdog story. One of the reasons that we like shows, life, or plays, or books about Lancelot and Guinevere. Or we like things like the movie Rocky, loosely based on this guy's life, that's Rocky Marciano, is because we like the story of underdogs. We like when something starts small like David and ends up big like King David, having knocked down giants in their paths. The Bible story is one of serious heavyweight hope. The guy that is on your screen right now was born September 1st, 1923. He was the son of two Italian immigrants, and he may not look at them, but he was a sickly kid who was kicked off of the athletic team and was a high school dropout. His first jobs were employment as a ditch digger, but by 1952, he was 49-0 and with 43 wins by a knockout with a right hand. He became world famous as Rocky Marciano because he had earth-shaking power in his right hand. Now, through the years, people have learned to admire people for different things. You move on to Joe Lewis, Joe Frazier, Big George, and Cassius Clay. You can scroll through those, Joy. And you remember all of them for something. Some of them for a George Foreman grill. Some of them for being the oldest man to ever win the heavyweight title. But you know what all of these men possess? Devastating power in their hands. They could stand in a ring, be being beaten to a pole, and with a single punch, turn it all around. My generation grew up hearing stories about Mike Tyson. When we got a chance to see his fights, the 20 or 30 seconds that they lasted, it ended in a devastating knockout blow. There's something in us that is drawn to this. Now, after I got filled with the Holy Ghost, I quit watching men beat each other to death. And I'm not making a comment on whether you do or don't. I'm telling you that there is something in us that craves to see an instant turnaround. That craves to see power to change it all. That craves some kind of hand from heaven that would reach into your life and give the enemy a knockout blow. Something to change, friends. If we don't go to church for this reason, why else would you be there if you were not looking for power to change to be like Christ? As we talk about this subject today, I would like to tell you that God has got knockout power. Are you in Exodus 15? You have to imagine that the events of this week that included Passover. What an underdog story. What nation has ever freed itself from the bondages of another nation putting them into slavery 
without warfare. Whatever nation has ever relied on such a simple method as the blood of a lamb and trust in their God to be born as a nation, to be baptized in the Red Sea, and to follow the leading of the living God. When they got to the other side of the Red Sea, they sang a song. And their song was about God's devastating knockout power. The first verse says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his armies He has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Oh my goodness, have you ever heard the expression, I dropped in like a rock? Oh my man. When two men are locked in mortal combat, one can be absolutely losing. But with a well-placed shot, he can drop the other one like a stone. What do you do, though, when your enemy is too powerful for you? What do you do when you've lost every round that you've ever gone with him? You have to cry out to a rock that is higher than you. Listen to this. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger, and it consumed them like stubble. So often in church, we talk about these events, and we forget that they are grounded in the absolute reality. I believe in something called verbal plenary inspiration. That means that this very scripture, each word, was breathed onto the pages. That God himself told man exactly what to write. Did you hear that a horse and rider were cast into the sea? This was like a tank of the day. For Pharaoh's chariots, the most powerful military machine on the planet in its day. Our God, by the power of his right hand, delivered his people. This is the story of the Bible, that God cared about those who were oppressed, and he reached down to grab hold of them and raise them up to a place where he was, is. This is essentially the Bible story, but it's not where it starts. It starts with a man's understanding that your enemy has been too powerful for you every day of your life. The contrary to popular belief, you have not lived a pretty good life and are not a pretty good old boy. But you have failed at every turn, lest God intervene with his majestic right hand. And we live for the moment that he does. We live for that moment that he brings the game-changing, bone-crushing power of a heavyweight. Oh, friends, turn with me to Psalm 80, and you will hear it said a little different way. Israel was chosen not because they were the greatest nation on the earth, but truthfully because they were small and insignificant. He set his affection upon them, the book of Deuteronomy says, because they were the least of all peoples. Our God loves an underdog. 
If you sit in this room tonight, this afternoon, and you feel like an underdog, there is nothing that is going right in your life. Your marriage is in shambles. Your relatives don't even love you anymore. Maybe you even have no place to sleep. I am telling you that a word from our God can turn it around in a simple moment. The Bible teaches us that when faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down upon it, and that they are friends that kiss each other in the streets. The living God is looking for something from us. He's looking for trust. He is looking for trust that is grounded in an obedient attitude and walk. How can we know if we trust if we are never put to the test? Have you ever met someone that lied? <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to look to your left and right. I'm simply going to say, well, I remember when my little boy Judah, who is a bit of a pragmatist, was watching infomercials back when our family watched TV. And he just told me I had to buy a gator wrench. I didn't have a choice. For $39, it was going to replace everything in my toolbox. For $39, it would make my life so much. Say, if I bought a gator wrench, everything would be rosy from then on out. And I said, Judah, why on earth would you think that? He said, because that's what that man said on TV. I didn't even let him get to the Christian channel and see where they really lie. Oh, my goodness. At least on the infomercials, we know what to expect. I would like to tell you that the Word of God is flawless. It contains not one lie. It is purified seven times over. The living God is full of power. And He chose Israel, the smallest on the planet. And at a day when they really felt like the underdog, these words came out of their mouths. This is Psalm 80, verse 14. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. That's how they saw themselves. Among the forests of the world, they saw themselves as a spreading vine. The root your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. Isn't it beautiful that we're not sure whether we're talking about the nation of Israel or a singular man? Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The Son of Man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. The cry of ancient Israel was, we can't see it. But somehow or another we perceive in the Spirit that there will be a man at your right hand. A Holy One, a Son of God. Let your hand rest upon Him that we might trust in you and be saved. Even when they didn't understand it, they were pointing to the underdog story. They were explaining to us to put our trust in the man who stands at God's right hand. And what is his name, friends? What is his name, friends? Oh, the Jews call him Yeshua. In the South, we call him Jesus. <laughs> Wherever you are in the world, they now know this name because 11 scared Jewish boys took it seriously and they believed that his name had chain-breaking power. Amen. Do you believe it? Yes. Will he break your chains? Yes. Oh, we just have to give him a chance and be honest and show him what our chains are. 
we hide them from Him, we cannot expect Him to free us from them. Let us look at a command given in Genesis 2. Many of us have been taught to see the Bible as a book of restriction. In the second chapter of Genesis, I would like to point to the fact that God put man in a garden. This is where our story begins. Just like the movie Rocky does not begin in a boxing ring. If you don't know the backstory, the victory that is obtained is somehow hollow. But having walked in their footsteps, having felt their pain, you can identify with it. My father is now in the presence of the living God. Somebody say, glory! glory. Oh, he's with the king of kings. But when we used to watch these movies together, from the comfort of his lazy boy, Mr. Gene, he would throw punches. My dad was a gentleman. He never got in a fight in his life. But if we're watching a boxing movie, he is a boxer. He's engaged. And he was always rooting for the underdog. It's in the heart of a man. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. Somebody say, work it. work it! The problem with Christians is we are often lazy. We stop doing the work of God. We simply say we believe we're supposed to work. But we are supposed to work it. He took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. Here comes your first command from God. Are you ready for it? It is not, you shall not. It is not a restriction. The first command is you are free to eat from any tree. Oh, what a gift. Have you ever been to an all-you-can-eat buffet? Yes. Look at me, I'm not lying. <laughs> free to eat from any tree. Essentially, our God is a God of freedom, not a God of restriction. He has not called you to a list of things that you do not and cannot do. He has called you to embrace a list of things that He wants you to do in His service. He wants you to work the garden. He wants you to take care of the surrounding. In short, He wanted you to be His hands and feet. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But... <laughs> you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. I would like you to picture your children sitting in their, their kitchen. You say you're free to eat from anything on the table. It was all prepared for you. It's all good. On the six days of creation, God called it all good. When he made man, he said it was very good. But the one thing you may not eat from is the Drano that I keep under the sink. Because if you eat it, you will die. God as a loving father surely knew that if man had the power to choose for himself good from evil, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, would take over in his being. And he would consistently choose evil. The same way any good father knows if your children eat Drano, it's bad for them. This is not a God of restriction. It is a God of protection. A God of loving benevolence. A magnificent God who wants you to enjoy the entire creation unless it is something that will hurt you. Oh my goodness, could we think about our activities? What have we enjoyed that is really killing us? What have we ingested that is really poison? What have we spoken that is poison? Our God is not a God that says don't all of the time. He's a God that tells you what 
to do. The don'ts are only things that will tear your life apart. Why does the living God set aside one man and one woman for an eternal covenant? Because nothing quite hurts like the pain so many of you have felt when that covenant is torn apart. He never wanted you to be hurt in these ways. Why does our God teach loyalty to Him, honor to Him? Because He knows what the lesser gods, the demonic powers of the world would do to you. He knows what they would require of you. He knows the way in which they would require your shedding of blood. The God we serve sheds blood for us. In this scenario, we can turn to the third chapter and first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Has there ever been an age in which the serpent has been speaking this more loudly? Did God really say that there are no restrictions for you? Did God really place a restriction on you, rather? He calls into question God's Word, despite the archaeological evidence, despite the manuscript evidence, despite the human testimony of countless millions of people. And they say today among our teenagers that more than 80% do not believe in such a thing as absolute truth or the inerrancy of Scripture. How sad. Could I ask you a question? What reason has God ever given you to doubt Him? The pictures you see scrolling back here are to remind us that we've lost a few rounds. Some of you might recognize a few of these guys. A minute ago, that was Rashad Evans. He had a 12-0 record. He was undefeated. He thought that there was absolutely no way that he could lose. One punch sent him to the ground in a way that he never quite recovered from. As the devil tried to knock you out, he's beginning to work upon mankind in the second verse. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. How many of us have been tricked by sin's deceptiveness? enticed by our own desires and in the moment we actually believed that there would be no consequence for our sin. And yet our lives have shown that the consequences are higher than we wanted them to be. This is what sin does. It deceives. It ensnares. It traps. But I want to remind you we serve a God who reaches down to raise up. The living God is not willing that any should perish. He did not desire any of you to perish. He does not want you to live broken, devastated lives. He wants you to have the abundant life. Even that message has been twisted by the serpent's cunningness in our day. We've mistaken the abundant life for many things. The abundant life is when you have confidence that your God hears you. When His Word is real to you and when you act on His Word, you see the results declared in His Word. Yes. 
The abundant life is a connected life with the living God. It's not a life that is defined by a Bentley. It's not a life that is defined by Cristal. Those are rap videos, friends. It doesn't matter which preacher is pushing it. It's the same rap video. It says, I'm a success. And despite your lack of success, if you do what I tell you, you too will be a success. They are fishers of funds, not fishers for men. Because the living God never promised you a fat checkbook. The living God promised to heal you. He promised to save you. He promised to be with you in trouble and deliver you. He did not promise you a Learjet. They are liars. How could I be so motivated about something like that? Because it's all I can hear preached. It's deafening. In 23 countries last year, I never saw a country in which I thought that was true. It doesn't work in India. It doesn't work in Africa. It doesn't work in East Europe. It is untrue. What is true is that if we obey God's word, there is life. There is abundant life. There is a connectedness with the living God. He will reach down and he will pull you up. The serpent lied to the woman. He said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Oh my goodness, you know this story. This is the three kinds of sin that we see in the world today. We've been down these rounds, and in these three kinds, you find that she looked upon the fruit. You can advance it, Joy. She looked upon the fruit. How many things have we looked at? How many things have we been hungry for that our living God did not apportion to us? She looked and saw that it was good for food, the scripture says. First John calls these the cravings of sinful man. How many things has your flesh craved that God has told you will hurt you? Craved. You know, early in life, your life is defined by cravings. I have the high honor and the privilege. My little great niece is in the service today. When she wants milk, you know it. She screams and lets you know she wants it. When she wants her diaper changed, she lets you know it. If you have something she wants, she lets you know it. These are the cravings of sinful man. They have been inside of us from the very beginning. And when we yearn for them and long for them and our lives are defined by them, we are destroyed. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. How many have been driving down the road and seen someone's house, seen someone's car, seen someone's family, and said, I want that for myself. What does that do to the family that you have, friends? If you have a wife and you've looked upon someone else's wife with desire, what does that do to your wife? So, well, she didn't know nothing. No, you murdered her in your heart to take another. 
What does it do to us? What does it do to mankind when our lives are defined by these areas of sin? She didn't stop there. How else did he appeal to her? Is desirable for gaining wisdom. Isn't it interesting that teenage boys can be defined by their fleshly cravings? Middle-aged men can be defined by what they see that they want. But as a man gets older, he's often defined by the pride of what he has and what he does. How many have been trapped by their wealth and their accomplishments? Friends, the devil has used these same three tricks for 4,000 years. Actually, we're getting closer to 6,000 years now. How many lives have been torn up? Have you ever watched VH1? Don't answer that question. Assuming that someone told you about VH1. Assuming for a moment that you were acquainted with the way that the rock stars live. Somebody's talented and they write a song with the talents that God gave them. They decide instead to use it for their own glory. They engage in every craving of the flesh. Everything that their body would crave just like food. And then as time goes on, they look and they see. And they grab jets and mansions and houses. And then as time goes on, they're proud of what they've achieved. And then how does the cycle end? They're drugged out, divorced, the band is broken up, and they work at Walmart or somewhere. Is that not the VH1 story? Over and over and over. What takes a normal man 80 years to ruin, they ruin in eight years. And we call them our heroes. Has there ever been a clearer picture of sin's destructiveness? Makes you wonder about what it means to become an American idol, doesn't it? By the time we get to 1 John, which I encourage you to go to now, we see three kinds of people. Three stages of Christian development. Our three kinds of sin were the cravings of sinful men. Some people call that the lust of the flesh. The second was the lust of his eyes. And the third was the pride of life, which is the boasting of what he has and does. Look in 1 John with me in a place you might not expect. This would be 1 John 2, and we will be in the 12th verse. Are you there? Yes, sir. I want to remind you before we read this, before we delve too deeply into sin, I don't want, I don't want despair to set in on the room on Resurrection Sunday. The Genesis story did not end with the woman and the man's failure, did it? No. Even when God was casting them from the garden, does not the 15th verse say, I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to the serpent? You will strike him upon the heel and he will crush you upon the head. By the 20th verse of Genesis 3, Adam understood something that escaped and eluded theologians for years. He named his wife, who had previously been called woman. How Spanish of him, huh? Mi mujer. He now named her Eve. Eve means the mother of the living. When Adam heard the curses that were pronounced, I'm sure that his heart sank at what he had done. But when he heard in them a promise, a hope of deliverance, 
He named his wife what she would become, the mother of the living. Friends, sometimes in a terrible situation, we need to not look at it as it is today. We need to name it what it can become. Oh, come on. How many of you want to be defined by your past? Come on, God. We hold our hope for the future. I want to tell you that there is a way to change. There is a hope avenue. The living God will instruct us as we become aware of the devil's schemes. We will learn to do warfare with the enemy. We will learn what it is to have God's knockout power at our disposal. It might even be closer than you think. Closer than it appears. Objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Did you know that the word of the living God was meant to be a mirror for your life? When you look into the Word, you're supposed to see your life, not everyone else's. When you glance at the Word and you see a shortcoming, we are not to think upon the shortcomings of our brothers. We are to look upon our image in that mirror and ask God with a poverty of spirit to say, Lord, will you change my ways? I would like to tell you, that the things that we read in this book are a little more close than they might appear. Are you now in 1 John? Here's the second chapter in the 12th verse. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. On account of His name, I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, John was a Hebrew man, and this letter comes to us in Greek. And in both languages, there's poetry available to them that is not to us, and this is probably a good example of it. To the original here, this would have sounded in a way that music relates to us, so that it would be easy to remember. And it was trying to communicate something to us. You're a child in the kingdom, someone who has been born again when you know that your sins are forgiven. To know God put you as a child in His kingdom. And there is only one way to know Him, that is through the Son, Jesus the Christ. However, when you become a man, albeit a young man in the kingdom, the Word of God begins to live in you. You become strong and your life is defined by overcoming the evil one. By the time you have lived from child to a man, to an older, more mature man, a father, if you will, the strength of your life is that you have known the Father since the beginning of your walk, and you have been through those stages. What this means is that when we're a child and we're born again, we turn on the lust of the flesh. We are not ruled anymore by simply what our flesh wants to eat or crave. When we are in the middle of our Christian walk, and we are strong and the Word of God is in us. We do not look upon the things the world looks upon with desire. We don't want them. And when we are fathers, our lives are not puffed up with the pride of life because you know that the only way you have succeeded
succeeded is that his knockout power came in and rescued him. The living God has warned us about the stages of our lives. He has warned us about the sins that we would face and what would be craved in them because he wants us to have hope. Just above this, or rather beneath this, you will see the 15th verse. What good wisdom from God. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. This would seem to be so condemning. This would seem to be like those first few verses of the third chapter of Genesis. You might even get the feeling, can I do anything right? And yet there is a promise in the 17th verse. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God will live forever. Amen. Oh, Jesus, that you would help us do the will of God. I want to encourage you, saints, that this world and its desires are passing away. The Bible story starts in the evening and moves to the daytime as a reminder that the night is going to pass and the day will dawn. Today's troubles, today's sorrows will turn into joy tomorrow. The living God is able to change our situation in even a moment. And it will always be accompanied by obedience to His Word. When a farmer plants seed, what does he expect to happen? Can he make it grow? Can the farmer go into the ground and speak to it and tell it to grow? Can he get electric paddles and shock it and cause it to grow? The only thing that will make it grow is God Himself. But when the planter plants the seed, he expects it to grow. God's nature has never changed. His Word is immutable. It will never change. If it says the world will pass away, then buddy, the world will pass away. And if it says that if you do the will of God, you will live forever, then my friend, you can count on living forever. I told my friends in Chicago as I got on the plane, we all wept like children. And I said, it's all right, my friend. We will get to do this for thousands upon thousands of years, and God willing, there will be times red hots in the millennial reign. <laughs> Michelle, they will be Hebrew originals, though. <laughs> I don't know. They got that pickle on there. Now I'm getting distracted. I'm not going to want to do a crawfish boil. It might even be the cravings of sinful man. No. Charlie, that makes me a child. I need you to leave me here on out. <laughs> Friends, the reality is all around us there's a competition for your desires. A competition for your attention. And that competition is supposed to be over in us. He's already won our affection. He's already proven himself. He's already demonstrated his love to us. Why don't we do this? Turn with me to John 14 and let us speak of this for a moment. Pastor Bartlett, as he often does, 
jumped right upon this as he was giving the invitation to the discipleship class. He was so right. It's almost as if the Spirit of God will orchestrate our services. We apparently don't have to write to Rome. We don't have to write to Springfield, Missouri. Apparently, if we will just tap into the power of the Holy Ghost, He knows what we need. Are you in the 14th chapter of John? I am not, but I'm getting there. I've repented, and now I am there. 14th chapter of John, pick up in the 28th verse. What is the picture of on the screen? Come on, speak to me, church. Speak to me, church. What is it? It's a lion of some kind. Why is its whole body not out there? He's stalking his prey. He's gazing over the cliff at something that he wants to devour. Did you know that the Bible says that you have an enemy and he is looking for someone to devour? We're told to stand firm to resist him. We're told that he will flee from us. You need to know that he's there. You need to know how to resist him so that our lives are not for his feasting. Listen to how Jesus said this. Verse 28. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. Jesus is speaking of his death and speaking of his resurrection. And he is telling them in advance because when a man tells you enough things that come to pass you eventually begin to believe Him. The Bible is a book of promises, many of which have already come to pass. Stop and think for a moment. How many times have you prayed to the living God and He has rescued you? How many times, friend, have you been rescued? Did you say, Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I will serve you. How many times have we promised? The Lord has never broken a promise. Are you a promise breaker, friend? I know that I've broken my share of promises. There is no point in which we look in the mirror and we do not see flaw. But when we look at Jesus, we see hope. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father. Hear this phrase and that I do exactly, say it exactly, what my Father has commanded me. Oh, the living God is walking in flesh among us. To tell you the truth, friend, the enemy had reason to prowl. He had reason to think that he would devour. We've all admitted in this room that we were promised breakers. Every one of us liable to destruction. Every one of us unfaithful to the living God. We were made in God's image. We looked like him. We we're put together like him. 
and there was a raging satanic power that resents your very existence because you are a reminder that God will lift up the lowly. That the one thing that he hates is pride that exalts itself against him. And he set out, the devil did, to devour you. And there have been many great men who walked with God. But in every case, when the man who stood up, look at my hand. Did you know that God has a hand? His is better than mine. Mine's had nails fired through it. Mine's had fingernails knocked off of it. Don't be disappointed in me, but I've never had one of those many petties, and I intend to go to the grave without ever having one. His is perfect. Mine is imperfect, but his is perfect. And let's just say that your hand for a moment represents God's hand, because it's made in the same way that God's hand is made. How many times has the devil stood up next to a man's hand and pushed it over? Oh, Moses was mighty. I mean, he was mighty. He was a prophet. He spoke with God face to face and was a friend. But the devil could get him bowed to anger. How many? John the Baptist, mighty and a prophet. But the devil could get him to bow to despair. As many as men of God had ever lived, the devil could get them all to bow in some area. He could find a flaw in all of them. This is why the book of John tells us that the Word of God became flesh. Friend, God put on a boxing glove. He poured Himself into a human being. And He said, you're about to see my right hand. You're about to see my right hand. You don't need a doctor's prescription that is full. You need to be full. 
And when God filled him in the hands of God, he became the perfect weapon. You and I may never be the perfect weapon, but the psalmist did say he would trade even my fingers for battle. Come on, show me your fingers, saints. He will train your fingers for battle. It might be, it might be something as simple as stop looking that way, friends. Turn and look towards Jesus and you just dealt the enemy a death blow. Because if the lust of their eyes doesn't get them, perhaps the word of God will grow in their hearts. It might be in the name of Jesus, be healed. It only takes a finger, friend, because the power of God is not in your charisma. The power of God is not in your social standing. The power of God is in the broken and contrite heart that wants to be filled more than they want to do anything else. Jesus, for the Holy Spirit, even Jesus had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He had not yet been to seminary and joined the denomination that said it's not necessary. He had not yet been told that the baptism in the Holy Ghost was simply an to salvation. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And so we must be. He returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. We must have gotten a condensed version of the story. We're going to read only about three areas that he was tempted by the devil. And yet this appears... To say that he was tempted for how many days? Forty days. Oh, friend, you think that you've had a rough day. You think that last week was just, even the teenagers today, they'll say it was hell. And I'm like, no, but you may find out what that is by. Forty days of temptation. Was he so nourished? Had he been doing his road work? Did Frank Stallone write him a song and he could jump rope to it? Not at all. In fact, he put himself at the most severe disadvantage that you could. He refused to feed his flesh in any way. He refused to look upon anything except God's face. And there was no pride to be found in him. How do men of God train? We train by getting full of the Holy Ghost. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. If you're from the South, he was hungry. I was with Spencer one time, and Spencer was hungry, and I think he ate 15 tacos in one set. <laughs> Spence, don't feel bad. I also ate 15 tacos. <laughs> I didn't want to be outdone by these younger men. <laughs> the devil said to him if you are the son of God tell this stone to become bread Jesus answered it is written man does not live on bread alone this comes from Deuteronomy the 8th chapter and 3rd verse and every Jewish boy had it memorized by the age 6 when the devil tempted him with the cravings of the flesh when he tempted him with the lust of the flesh, Jesus reached up, grabbed the hand of God, and he hit him right in the face. Oh, how do we handle temptation in our lives? Does the Word of God flow out of you? 
Jesus hit him with the word. Yeah. How interesting that we're being offered the kingdoms of the world in Jesus' name. A gospel with no sacrifice at all. The devil has never been creative enough to come up with a new kind of sin. He just presents them in new ways. The lust of the eyes. I just want to tell you that in this congregation, you will never be told that if you give $100, God will give you $700. I want to tell you the truth. If you give $100, you may have to eat macaroni and cheese, but it will be worth it. That's what I'm telling you. It will be worth it. And when you make your life about sacrifice for someone else, the living God says, yes, that's the spirit I'm after. The one that reaches down to lift up. The one that empowers and helps the widow and the orphan. That is what I'm after, the man who does my will. That's a life I can bless. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He hid him. The lust of the eyes had no power over Jesus. The devil led him to Jerusalem to stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written. Isn't it interesting that the devil can quote Scripture? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered. What's Jesus fixing to do? He's about to hit him one more time. Oh, come on, anybody out there ever been in the situation? You didn't know how many times it was going to take, but you knew you were going to give as many times as it took. Oh, I suggest, friends, you never back God in a corner. He's bigger than that. Allow yourself to be backed into a corner first. Did you know that he led Israel out on a little peninsula that was indefensible? He let the armies of Pharaoh get right on top of them. It must have looked like the most foolish thing that had ever happened in the history of battle. But if you want to attack my little girl, and I shove her into a corner, it's not to punish her. It's not to make her an easier target. I will do exactly what the living God did. He then moved from being in front of the Israelites to moving to the rear guard. He stood between them and Pharaoh. See, what looked like a trap to them, what looked like a weakness to them, what looked like a position that was indefensible, and how could we do it, suddenly became the only place on earth they were actually safe, in the shadow of their father. What is the Lord asking you to do that to you feels indefensible? To you, it's just, Lord, if I did that, though, I would leave myself so vulnerable. Maybe it's the only real position that you can be defended by God in your entire life. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When we boast about what we have and lean on our own arm and think that we have achieved for ourselves anything, we're actually wrapping the pride of life around our neck like a noose. God told His people, when you go into the land and you have walled cities and you have the harvest and you have all of the things that have blessed you, do not think to yourself, my own arm has created this 
wealth for me. For it is the Lord your God that gives you the power to make wealth. The living God loves His children. He loves them. He does battle for them. He interjects Himself into the situation and He will hit the enemy. What does this next verse say? When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. What was that opportune time, friends? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. We're nearing the end of our story. We're nearing the end of our sermon. And we're nearing the end of your decision time. Who knows how many opportunities a man will get to turn around? If Herod had known he was going to be struck dead, I bet he would have chosen his words differently. One of our illustrious presidents here recently had known he would have gotten caught. I bet he would have done things differently. We cannot wait till it's too late and then beg for mercy. Today is the day of salvation. When is the day of salvation? Today. Oh, you said it, friends. Today is the day of salvation. Our God has a great exchange program. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did not yield to the cravings of His flesh. Jesus did not yield to the cravings of His eyes. Jesus did not yield to the pride of life. He was completely innocent in every area. He was innocent like a child. He was innocent like a man. And He was innocent like a father. He didn't fail in any area that all of us have failed in. Can you say that it is unfair for God to put Him on a cross? It is. It is grossly unfair. But herein is the nature of our God. If there is a damage to be taken, if there is an injury to be had, He puts Himself between you and the enemy. The living God by His right hand and the man at His right hand has taken the punishment that we deserve. When I say the punishment that we deserve, it's called the diffusion of responsibility. If it's the punishment they deserved over there, and the punishment they deserved there, and the punishment they deserved there, then somehow or another it's like it's a little less my punishment. I'd like to tell every man, woman, and child in this room, your sin killed Jesus. Yours and nobody else's. And at the same time, yours and everybody else's. But if it was just yours, your sin killed Jesus. What kind of response does that demand? Does that demand lip service? Does that, does that demand sympathy? How about a bumper sticker? Does that demand a bumper sticker? Or a Christian t-shirt occasionally? Oh, I know. 
some change thrown in the plate. We'll tip a God like that. I would say that it demands all-out obedience. Because the man who does not love the world or anything in it, but lives to do the will of God, he will live forever. That will be a friend of God. Do you want to be a friend of God? Yes. Turn with me to Isaiah 61 so that we can hear about God's great exchange program. Jesus could have preached from anywhere. I mean, He is the Word. It's His prerogative to choose the text when He stands in His hometown. And where does the scroll open to? To Isaiah, the 61st chapter. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Who is God concerned with? He's concerned with the poor. The living God is concerned with the oppressed. The Bible is essentially a story about a God who reaches down to help those who cannot help themselves. So what category are you in, friends? Are you helping yourself just fine? Or do you still desperately need a move from heaven? A game-changing power of the right hand. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Is your heart just fine? Or is it broken? To proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Michael Hutchinson quoted for me Harriet Tubman and I've never forgotten it. Is it true, Miss Tubman, that you freed hundreds of slaves? Yes, it is true. And I would have freed thousands more if only they had known they were slaves. Are you a captive to sin sitting in the house of God today proclaiming yourself to be free? Are you actually free? Because a freed man knows that he's free. A captive can pretend. But when you are free from the shackles of sin and you live to do the will of God, it feels so good that you can't hide it. It feels so good that it overflows to all who are around. It feels so good that you have to share it. Does that describe your life? Or have you been found wanting today? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. What kind of heavyweight hope do we have? Although your life has been reduced to ashes. Maybe you have been beat into a greasy little spot on the spiritual landscape. The Lord God will take your ashes from you if you're willing to give Him all of them. And He will give you a crown of beauty. He wants all of your life. Your life is diseased and broken and putrid and maybe you don't even want it. But He does. Because the living God knows that when He touches a leper, He cleanses them. He knows that He can take a leper and make him a priest. He knows that it's sinners that He instructs. He knows that if the poor and the oppressed of the earth 
that will love him when he forgives them. He who has been forgiven much loves much. While we're in Isaiah, turn to 53, and we are coming to our end. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. What do we say about a God who has done that for us and a people who refuse to honor Him for it? I say today is the day of salvation. Today and no other. It is this day that we come to Him. Now, this is Resurrection Sunday. If Jesus had just been a man who died, it would be an inspiring story. If he had just been a man who died, it would be heartwarming. It would be touching. The trouble with Jesus, the beautiful thing about Jesus, is he did not just die. Turn with me to Matthew 27. Say there when you're there. One of you is there. We cannot stop in the crucifixion, friends. A fifth of the world's population already did that. There is no power in it. In Matthew 27, hear what happens in the 50th verse at the crucifixion. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, He gave up His spirit. Can any of you do that? Anybody like to try right now? Curtis, concentrate really hard. Stroke your goatee a little bit. And blink twice and see if you can give up the Holy Ghost. You can't. Your life is not yours. And you can't just surrender it. Your life is a gift from God. What you do with it is up to you. But you cannot just close your eyes and surrender it. It doesn't work that way. You can't close your eyes and return it to the living God. Though. Jesus did not have His life taken from Him. He offered it. He offered it in exchange for your life. He could look out upon creation and see that we drank the Drano that we weren't supposed to. He can see that we ate from the tree that we weren't supposed to. And He knew that God's righteousness demanded a death. And He was not willing to let you die. So He stuck His hand in the blender. He took the hit on the chin. It wasn't taken to him. It wasn't done to him. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. He did not resist. He gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. It turns out that Jesus is the resurrecting power of God. That the first Adam went down for the count.
prince of this world devastated. But Jesus, like a second Adam, like a heavyweight coming to the rescue, like a lion in full charge, when tempted, hit the enemy. What this means is he may have wobbled. He may have been stricken on the heel. But this was just winding up for a resurrection knockout. There was a veil that is torn in this verse. No human being could tear it. If the power team were there, all of them couldn't tear it. If Charles Atlas was there, he couldn't tear it. It was 50 feet high. It was 8 inches or more thick. It did not tear from the bottom up. The rift, the gulf between man and God would never be fixed by a normal man. It would take God reaching His hand into a human being. And then it would be torn from God down. There is a barrier between many of us and God. It is our sin. His holiness does not allow us to fellowship with Him because of our sin. No amount of cleaning your life, no amount of trying to straighten out your behavior can fix it. You cannot tear the curtain from the bottom up. We can only beg and cry out to the living God and then trust that when He says it is removed, it is removed. Because He is no liar. How do we know that He is no liar? Look at the promise in Matthew 26, starting in verse 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you said. Jesus replied, but I tell you, I say to all of you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting where? At the right hand. Jesus is about to prove that every word that he ever said was true. If I tell you that I can bend wood, and you doubt me, and I bend wood, and then I tell you I can bend metal, and I bend metal, at some point, what could be greater than a resurrection from the dead to prove His promise is true? <clears throat> Let's read together from Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. The empty tomb is our promise. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary from Migdal and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. Oh, friends, the Bible story always has heaven reaching down. The question is, will earth ever reach back? And going to the tomb, they rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Oh, man. We are all like dead men until we are born again. 
The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. They went and they looked in. It may not have been this tomb, but it was a tomb very much like it. And the man who said he could free you from sin, that you could cross from death to life, proved it by doing it himself. The body was raised. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses over the course of 50 days. They ate with him. They touched him. They worshipped him. All oh, that we could worship a risen Christ this morning. Saved or unsaved, healed or hurt, happy or sad, we're all going to stand to our feet.